going to ask you to do something a little different. Can y'all just, if you're able to and willing, could you just all move to the center? I'd appreciate it very much. By the way, the rows up front are more softer because no one ever sits there. The seventh trumpet, about to the halfway mark of the book of Revelation. Giving thanks to God is equated, associated with honoring God. Honoring Him, the worship of Him. Gratitude to God arises from the knowledge of His goodness, His grace, His mercy, and His majesty. An individual who does not give thanks to God will not, indeed cannot, honor Him as God. If you fail to express gratitude towards God, you cannot worship Him in a way that he is worthy of. That's because worship and gratitude are intimately connected, each demanding the other. If we fail to express gratitude toward the Creator, we demonstrate that we are incapable of worshiping him as God. If our gratitude is reduced to a mere formality, occasionally grunted out before a meal, we have already been co-opted by the world in which we live. Expressing gratitude in prayer is good and necessary for the child of God, but it's not merely speaking the words that reveal our gratitude. It's the way we live our lives, especially when we worship what we offer to Him when we worship Him. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we have witnessed worship expressing gratitude that is offered to God by the redeemed saints, Hagios, the Holy Ones. With that in mind, how would you describe worship today? Is it merely a performance with emphasis being on how we feel? However, we look in the book of Revelation, we see the emphasis in heaven is upon service to the living God. Worshippers in heaven are less concerned with their performance than they are with the one who is worshipped, i.e. the audience of one. If we're concerned that we may not sound good or sing off key, our focus will not be entirely on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If our concern is how others may judge our efforts at worship, our sole concern will not be to honor God. To sum up, if we stifle worship, we stifle gratitude. If we're ungrateful, we cannot worship. If we're truly grateful, we cannot help but worship. Remember the old hymn, count your many blessings, see what God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings. Count your many blessings. See what? Exactly. In our text today, we find both thanksgiving and worship. We see that happening in verse 17. Let's turn our uh, attention back to verse 15. Let's work our way through it. 
It says that the seventh angel sounded, or he blew his trumpet. Now, unlike the first six trumpets, each one announcing, proclaiming a judgment, the seventh trumpet peels back the veil of heaven with an announcement. And according to the text, there's multiple voices that are combined in this heavenly announcement. It's loud. Some translations, instead of saying they said this or saying, it says shouted. What did they say? What did they shout? Look back at the text. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There has never been a time, dear beloved, that the world, cosmos, the creation, the universe has not belonged to the Lord. It's only under his divine providence that evil, satanic forces, have been given limited domain, limited power, limited rule. And you can see this, evidence of this, can be observed throughout the course of history. But they're only acting under the divine providence of God. You see that in the book of Job. Job is not privy to the conversation we read about in chapter 1, where there's a conversation between the Lord and Satan where Satan has to ask for permission. And by the way, Satan keeps going back and forth, so Satan's not omnipresent like God. He has to go back and forth. But he does all that under the divine providence of God. Another thing about this announcement, it seems to appear to be an answer of a prayer that we read back in Matthew chapter 6. That's the Lord's Prayer, his model prayer. But specifically, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, one of the petitions of Jesus to his Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming of the Christ and the establishment of his kingdom will be the fulfillment of the promised reign of the Son of David. It will never cease to exist. And that's a promise he made back to David when David was king. And Jesus is in the lineage, biological lineage of David. He is a descendant of David. So God is fulfilling that promise he made centuries ago to David. It says the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now it's a distinctly binatarian language. And since the Holy Spirit is clearly evoked other parts of the book, it's apparent that the Holy Spirit is there. So the theology, the theology of the book of Revelation is Trinitarian. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this reference, our Lord is reference to God the Father, and Christ is a, parent, it's a reference to God the Son. Now Christ, and you know this already, but Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It means the Anointed One. In the Greek, literally, it says Jesus the Christ. Is this in our English translations? They have dropped the definite article of the. It's always Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. See how distinctive that is? There is no uh, room to say a Christ or a Son. No, it's clear in the original language. Jesus is the Christ, the only one, and he is the Son of the living God. And he sums up by saying he will reign forever and ever. Now, literally, if you follow it in the Greek, it says, unto the ages of the ages. And that's a Hebrew idiom or expression. You know what an idiom is, right? 
you're expressing something, but the words don't exactly mean what they normally mean in a sentence. In other words, you bought a car and it's a lemon. Well, I'm not telling your car is really, literally a lemon. I'm telling you you're having problems with the car. You take it back to the dealer. Or that guy's getting cold feet. Now, he may have cold feet, but if I'm saying it before he's about to get married, I'm expressing that he's taking seriously about what he's about to go into. He's getting a little nervous, maybe a little pressure building. I'm not telling you his feet are actually cold or his toes are cold and we need to get socks from him. No, I'm telling you that he's having second thoughts, really, when you say that. So this is what this is saying. And what it's depicting or describing is a state that simply never ceases. And that's hard for us as humans to really wrap our minds around that because everything we experience in this life has a beginning and has an end. But God does not. God will always has been and always will be. He will reign forever and ever. It will never cease to exist. We come to verse 16. The 24 elders who center the thrones before God fell on their faces or face down and worship God. Now, this is obvious when you read the text, but, but let's look at this once again. Notice, the 24 elders are sitting on their thrones. They're sitting there until this announcement comes forth. What do they do? They immediately abandon their thrones and they fall on their faces and worship Almighty God. The interesting thing here is the word fell is the same Greek word we find back in verse 13 when it said that the tower fell. So using that as a picture, you can imagine how quickly they went. There was no hesitation, no discussion, no voting of it. When they heard it, they went right to their face, prostrate before the Lord, and they worshiped Him. Now standing... The lifting of holy hands, by the way, in Baptist tradition, we don't like to raise our hands too much. Do you know why? Back in the 18th, 19th century, in the great, well, back in the 18th century, really, when we were going out west, they had frontier revivals. And things were happening, such as holy laughing. I'm not making this up. I'll take it to my text after the service. Holy barking. Now, if you start to laugh or bark, that's it. I'm stopping because I won't be thinking of preaching the word at that point. So in order to distance ourselves from all that, we went, in my opinion, too far the other way. There are many passages in Scripture talking about the raising of holy hands. There is passages, many of kneeling before or even falling prostrate down on our faces before God. Now all those things, lifting of hands, singing and praying, they all have their place in worship. But it seems to me that many of us including myself, we tend to forget the most constant response in worship. The reaction of someone who finds themselves in the presence of the Almighty living God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah says. In that context, God just shows up, doesn't say one word. And Isaiah realizes he's in his presence, and that's what he confesses right there in verse 5. 
Another example of what I'm talking about is Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Context of that verse, Jesus was out teaching, and he got into the boat, and he pushed him out. He's in the lake, he's teaching. His voice will naturally carry up the hill off the water. And he, after he gets done teaching, he looks back and says, well, throw your nets overboard. <laughs> now, this is nowhere in the text. This is me thinking out loud. I can imagine Peter saying, wait a second now. We've been out here all day having catch one thing. I'm a professional fisherman. Jesus, you know your stuff, but I'm professional. But since you told me to, I'll let down the nets. And what happens? The nets get so full of fish, they almost break, almost sink the boat when they try to bring it on board. And when Peter sees this, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. What I'm getting at is the holiness of God that gets that type of reaction. And that's exactly what happens to the 24 elders. The response of one who finds themselves in the presence of God. When we meet to worship, when we pray, when we sing, we're in the presence of the almighty living God who is holy. By the way, it doesn't stop. When you pray in your car, and you pray at your house, if you worship, I hope you have personal worship time outside this time, you're entering into the very presence of God himself who is holy. How dare I nonchalant stand there and talk to him as though I was his equal. I am not. The holiness, we, we have lost that, haven't we? We forget about what worship is really all about. This holy God. Think about the Old Testament. There was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the very presence of God. See, when we come to God, we don't stand on the outsides of the temple. We're not standing on the outside courts. We're not even in the court of Israel. We're not even in the holy place. We're right in the holy of holies. And we can do that because the shed blood of Christ. I'm just wondering out loud that if I took that more to heart, if we all took it more to heart, what would our worship look like? What would we do anything different, you think? This points to ponder. Look what they say in verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now some translations will render that who is and who was. Notice their expression of praise involves, includes, and contains thanksgiving. The first words out of their mouth, we give you thanks. Now the Greek word translated almighty here is not talking about his power per se, a reference to his activity in creation, or anything he could do, but to his supremacy. His ultimate controlling influence over the course of time and eternity. See, there's, there's no competition here. He is supreme over everything. Here and now and for all eternity, he is supreme. He is almighty. And one of the reasons for this attribute of almighty is that expression who are, who were, who is, and who was. This emphasis is on a continual and uninterrupted 
uninterrupted, uninterrupted status as Almighty. Now, the one who is to come is not mentioned here because it's apparent in the context of the verse. Now, think about this. The Almighty God, before whom the 24 elders now worship, is the very one who will reign forever and ever, and the very one who was, who is, and is to come. May I repeat that? The Almighty God, whom we worship, will reign forever and ever, who was, who is, and who is to come, is holy. That's the God that we worship. That word taken, in the Greek, it's perfect, active, and indicative. And why do I say that? Because the emphasis is on the action. And this action has taken place, will continue to have impact into the future. Perpetually, endlessly into the future. Divine providence has allowed the power of evil to have their day and accumulate wrath for themselves. And whatever has temporarily allowed, temporarily allowed has now been constrained because the God is now taking all power and all reign to himself. In other words, everything we see happening today, God's allowing it because he is in complete control. It's his. It's his creation. He created it. It belongs to him. But the day is coming when he's going to take all reign for himself. That's the day of reckoning. That's the day when everything will be set back the way it was originally intended. I shared with our prayer group this morning that as I walk through this book more and more and I read about his wrath and his punishment, how thankful I am. Because God of his grace, I am spared that wrath and that judgment. Verse 18, the nations were enraged, they were angry, and your wrath came. Human history is a tragic tale of revenge and greed and opposition and heartlessness. The anger, the resentment, the animosity of the nations are no longer directed at each other. But it's hostility to the truth and virtue of God and against him personally. Are we seeing that happening in our society in this we speak? Are the virtues and the truth of God becoming objects of hostility? Do you see Christianity being more attacked than ever before? Especially here in the United States of America. However, it's telling us that this situation will be reversed for the wrath of God has come. And that term wrath does not mean or describe a loss of temper. It's a settled disposition of God against all that corrupts his creation, distorts his creation. He's not just flaring off to get mad, but he's coming against anything that's corrupted or distorted his creation. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in or by unrighteousness. Everybody's out here running around now, doing what they want to do. Party on because the day will t- t- tomorrow we will die is kind of the attitude people do. But there is a day coming, and coming soon. Just because God has not acted yet, 
Don't think he is weak or is unable to do anything about the evil in the world. He has a plan. He will pour out his wrath and judgment. But because God is loving, gracious, and very patient, he wants all to come to repentance. God's wrath has always been revealed in some form or fashion. But now in this time, is coming with renewed intensity and final manifestation. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Oh, you think you're getting away with it, but you're simply storing up wrath for yourselves that revealed on that day on the righteous judgment of God. One thing I have learned Sin will always find you out. Oh, you'll get away for, for a while and you think you're fooling everybody, but you're not. Eventually, it will find you out. But more importantly, we, we talked about the presence of God. and We, we call this place a, a sanctuary. You know why? Because this is where we meet. What binds us together is more powerful than anything in the world. It's the blood of Christ that binds us together. And we're in his presence. But if you read Psalm 139, which I would highly recommend you do if you're not familiar with that psalm later on today or this week, you will find out there is nowhere you can run to get out of his presence. He's always watching. Here's something else. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows the true intentions. We can fool God. We can't fool God, excuse me, we can't fool God. We can fool each other, but not him. And that same verse, verse 18, the time came for the dead to be judged. Life on this earth is just a prelude, all right? It's, it's the curtain that hides the rest of the stage from the, from the audience. It's that wall that separates the stage from the audience. It's just the preface. It's the introduction. What is a preface? What is an introduction? That's where the author usually lays out his argument or what he's going to write about. Maybe some background information, who he is. This is my thesis. This is what I'm after. That's the preface. What we're doing now, ladies and gentlemen, is simply just the introduction. It's just the preface or the introduction of what is going to happen. Those who die who do not accept the Lord's sacrifice on the cross will have to face their judgment. We have a choice. Either we can come to Christ, put our faith in who He is, His sacrifice on the cross, and let Him be both Lord and Savior of our lives, and trust in Him. Let the Holy Spirit take up reign in our lives to guide us, and direct us, or we can totally reject it and rebel against God. But sin will be paid for one way or the other, either through the cross of Christ or you'll pay for it yourself one day. The time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, the holy ones, those who fear your name, 
Now the bond service, the prophets, are those who declared God's message back in Old Testament and the New Testament eras. The saints, holy ones. How many saints do we have in the house? You guys are not very confident about that. And we, this has, I'm, I'm going to try so hard not to chase a rabbit. Guys, you are a child of God. Don't be ashamed of it. You are a holy one. It's based on all which you could, you say, well, I'm not, I know, I'm not good either. It's because of the shed blood of Christ we can declare that we are saints. And the ones who fear his name. Now, this fear is not like a cringing fear. It's better described as reverence or respect or admiration. It's like the fear of the child. The, the child knows about the great love and concern about his or her father. But they also fear that father when they are disobedient to him. But real fear when we are afraid should make us run to the father instead of running away from the father. Because when we're scared as children, who do we run to? Our parents. I remember one time that one of my girls, I don't know how old they were, was screaming. I think they had a bad dream. And all I heard was, Daddy, 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 Daddy. I went in there running. Although they would be afraid of me when it came to being disobedient, but they knew to come to me if they were scared. Same thing with our Heavenly Father. Run to Him. Run to Him. This is both the small and great. Actually, the New American Standard says small and great, but some throw in both the small and great. Well, the great would be those who are widely known and respected. Some of our leaders in the churches today that we know of, some well uh, preachers, proclaimers, orators of the gospel, some good guys out there, faithful. Man, they can put me to shame preaching. They're just good at it. They can, they're just gifted with all that. But then there's those small ones, those who are hardly noticed at all. That never get on anyone's radar, but they continue on to be faithful. No one really knows their name. But I'm looking at some of those right now as I'm looking out in this congregation. I see some prayer warriors. I see some faithful givers. I see some encouragers who are still here forging on. No one knows your name. The world doesn't give you a second glance, but you are highly esteemed by the Lord because you are going quietly and perhaps largely unnoticed. But God sees what you do for him. In verse 18, to destroy those who destroy the earth, that appears to be a reference to the beast and the false prophet of chapter 13 and the scarlet woman of chapter 17, and ultimately the Babylon the Great. And the connection for this destruction goes back to her statement about his wrath coming. And now we come to verse 19. I'm going to say as disclosure, there is a lot written about the ark, why the ark is here, and not in the other uh, temple that John sees later, and where the ark is now, what happened to the ark, who has the ark. There's multiple books, articles, even a movie made out of it about the ark. But I just want to make a few remarks about this. The, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Now, that's, that's 
important because what was the ark? The ark was a symbol of God's promises, and it was the focus of the Day of Atonement. The top was called the mercy seat. It sat in the Holy of Holies. One day a year, the holy priest would go in, sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat, atoning for the sins of the people, the nation. Now, he had to get himself cleansed before he did that. This is probably a good discussion for tabletop because there's a lot to be said about the Day of Atonement, what happened, and, of course, the Ark of itself. It was resided in the Holy, Holy of Holies place where Israel would believe that that was uniquely a drilling place of God, although they did recognize omnipresence, but in some unique way he dwelt there among his people like he promised he would. I think the importance here is that as this announcement is being made, he sees that ark because of what the ark symbolized, the promises of God and the atonement that's made available. In the Ark of the Covenant, you recall, there was what? Aaron's rod that had budded. It was a jar of manna and also the tablets the Ten Commandments were on that were written by God. I think it's a way of reminder. And uh, yes, I'm kind of, kind of putting the ball here. I, for this, this morning, I don't want to get into all the ifs, ands, or buts about the Ark. Why it's, it's important to note why it's appearing there. But to make a full circle now, Because the action that God takes, it responds by the 24 elders giving thanks to him. It goes back to the statement that if you fail to express gratitude toward the Lord God Almighty, you demonstrate that you're incapable of worship. Once again, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. I mean, we were going around the room right now with a, with a microphone. How long would it take us to name every single blessing God has poured out upon us? It would take, well, probably take forever. Think about that for a second. How blessed we are. You know, as I think about Thanksgiving, I think about this question that can you thank somebody if you do not know them? Oh, sure, you can write a, send a card to someone and say thanks, but it doesn't carry the same weight as when you really know that person. Oh, sure, you may know facts about God. You may have read many books about the Trinity and prayer and worship. You may be able to quote scripture and have chunks of scripture memorized, but that's all head knowledge, which is good, by the way. It's good to have it memorized. That's how our brothers and sisters who get martyred and get thrown in prison, they memorize scripture, they write on the walls. Nothing wrong with that, but do you really know him? Have you received the gift of life that he offers to everyone? Christ Jesus, the Son of God, he gave his life for a sacrifice for your sins. He died and was buried and he rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. He conquered sin, death, and the grave. And he offers salvation to all who confess and repent. I have to watch myself because during my daily 
activities. If I get around people who are complaining, it's easy to start complaining. If everything else is taken from me, I can still give thanks to God for salvation. Because nothing can take that from me. Nothing. He holds me securely in his hand. Not only has he saved me, created in me a new being, constantly working on me and molding me and shaping me. Sometimes that's a very painful process of many of you are aware. But none of you in this room knew me before I was a Christian. To stand here and to break open his word at this pulpit to people who have been Christians longer than I've been alive. The, the sacred desk, as it's referred to in England. Who am I that he would impart such a great privilege and responsibility? His grace, his love. If you've received the gift of salvation, is Jesus both Lord and Savior of your life? You can't have one without the other. Yes, he's our friend. But first and foremost, he's our Lord. By Lord, meaning that he calls the shots. You ask him. You ask him to what to do in situations from the most biggest thing in your life to the smallest things in life. And I know I made some people take a double look at me this week as I was driving home. Um, I have a tendency to get a little too mad behind the wheel, let's say. I had the top down, and I just cried out on three different occasions, Father, calm my spirit. He did. Reminded me of the most important things in life. So let me just sum up this to you. Do you give him thanks on a daily basis? Is our worship more based on what we want and how we feel, what makes us feel good, what makes us comfortable, or is it focused on him, what brings him the honor, the respect, the admiration, the worship that he truly deserves? And if God was to manifest his presence, he's here, he's here now, and that tug on your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. But if he was to manifest his presence in a physical way right here, what do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We don't even think about it. All of us would hit the floor with our faces on the ground and crying out, holy, holy, holy are you. if we put that application on an individual basis, I wonder what would happen. And it's easy to get pulled in different directions. I know we got voices everywhere talking at us. 
buy this, buy that, do this, do that, go here, go there, go, 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 do, do, gig, 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 give, give. It is constant. What we need to do is make time that we leave all that stuff aside and focus on him and say, God, what does you want me to do? A little confession time for our wrapped up dial. <laughs> that Sunday school class we had not about two days, two weeks ago about what kind of language and stuff, I find myself clicking through the channels because I can't find anything to watch. That it's appropriate that I don't hear his name being profaned or words I should even listen to on stuff that's PG rated. It's something I'm walking through right now. Hmm. What is God talking to you about? Based on your actions, most of you, I believe most of you be a, a child of God, born again believer in Christ. What is God calling you to do next? If you need to pray, the time is now. If you need to confess and repent, the time is now. If you simply want, just want to praise him and give you thanks, the time is now. I'd rather do something now than later have all eternity to regret it. <laughs> I often think, Nowhere in Scripture, I often think when I stand before the Lord that day and everything I've studied about and I've preached about and I've studied about, my faith will now become my sight. And in that moment, I wonder if I'm going to have this thought, why didn't I do more? There it is, just like he said it was. Why didn't I do more? It's hard work. No doubt about it. But the day is coming. And when you want to hear those wonderful words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that's been prepared to you, prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you, Lord, just for being who you are. The very fact that you sustain creation. That even now you're the one who's allowing us to breathe. And as we pray to you in this moment, as I lift up this prayer on behalf of the congregation, the very air that's coming out of my mouth to pronounce these words is the very air you give me to breathe. Lord, there's so much I don't understand. But I know you are trustworthy. I know that you are creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters to you in this moment. Would you reach down with your mighty arms of love, mercy. Just wrap them around them and pull them close to your side. Continue to reveal to us the God that you are. And for those 
watching via live stream, dear God. I, I don't know if, you, if anyone's on or not. It doesn't matter, dear God. Would you, right now, would you just reveal yourself in a real and tangible way? Forgive us, oh God, for being greedy and selfish and only thinking about ourselves. Fighting over things that really don't belong to us, belong to you. And we're called to be good stewards of it. Continue to mold us and to shape us into the image of your son. In his name that we pray, amen. Would you stay with me?